Hello, and welcome to CAA Conversations. I'm here today with Paul Catanese from Columbia College, Chicago, and Greg Pond from University of the South. Paul Catanese is an associate professor at Columbia College, Chicago, where he directs the graduate program for the Art and Art History Department. He's been known to fly kites, launch rockets, pilot drones, and lately, a blimp as part of his art practice. Greg Pond is a professor of art at Sewanee, the University of the South in Tennessee. Originally from Portland, Oregon, Pond is one of the founders of Nashville's Fugitive Projects and a sculptor who incorporates sound, video, and digital media into his practice and also makes documentaries about social justice issues in inner city Kingston, Jamaica. Today they're here to talk about intermedia pedagogy and research. So without further ado, I'll hand the conversation over to these two. Thank you, Ellen. Well, thanks, Ellen. Really appreciate that. Hi, Greg. <laughs> How are you? So, Good. <laughs> you know, I, I think part of what prompted this conversation was maybe where how each of us came to our current practice, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Your background in theater, and my background in sculpture, and yet somehow we find ourselves kind of occupying similar territory, right, in terms of um, uh, media and the technology we use to produce our work, right? So, may I, you know, I, what I think is kind of interesting is that, or it might be interesting to hear a little bit about where you came from, you know, how you came, how you came to produce your current work. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Greg. Yeah, I, uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, in It's one of those things where hindsight looks like a straight line, but I don't think I, I I'm not sure if anybody would have planned out their path um, or could have planned out their path in a, you know, looking forward. Maybe they can. I don't know. You know, it's funny. I, all the years, my theater background comes up again and again and again. It's just in there. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, the last the last few years, uh, having made a lot of work with, with installation and some print, um, one of the major projects I guess I've been doing uh, been working out in the desert, uh, in like southern Arizona, Great Basin deserts everywhere from southern Arizona all the way up through like eastern Oregon, kind of the high desert. Uh, sort of thinking about um, a thought experiment about what it might mean to create a drawing on Earth so big that you could see it if you were standing on the moon and looking back. And that kind of thought experiment, that starting point led to some really wild, for me, uh, questions about, um, you know, really difficult vision. Uh, the, the width of the line would actually have to be 60 miles wide and you'd have to draw with that. And so as I started to figure thing that out, um, early, very, very early on in the project, uh, it felt just sort of intractable and really compelling because it felt so impossible. I, I felt immediately attracted to how do I engage with this idea that's a real, real pro like it's a, its own premise is a problem. And so, um, you know, I think theater and print and all these different materials that I've worked with over the years, uh, new media in particular, uh, it's a good corollary to the conceptual space where you could say, well, wait a minute, what's visible anyway? And where is this space? Is that, you know, space from moon to the earth? Or is there some other model, whether that's a virtual model or a physical model or a scale model that 
working with these, again, new media as a very, very conceptual space, um, it just sort of immediately allows you to do things like, uh, you know, set up an installation out in the desert on the desert floor and then learn how to fly drones over it um, in order to like kind of capture it and think about that space instead. Um, I could spend a lot more time talking about about that, but it, it did lead to some work with, with blends and stuff that I'm sure we could, um, but you know, uh, it's just not about straight lines. Um, so is the process of the execution that became essential to the work then, right? So in terms of describing how it would actually come to be, right? Because it seems like that was an impossible sort of physical mark to sort of lay across the landscape, right? Right. And so, you know, it had to be, it was work that had to be performed in order for me to even understand the question that I was asking. And then there's sort of these ephemera and artifacts and videos and site-specific events. You know, if you were out in the desert with me, which was rare, but it did happen, you could actually see me trying to conduct these experiments that were, you know, I guess... I guess if you're if the goal if the only goal was to actually make this drawing to see from the moon, then I suppose they were failure after failure after failure. But if the goal was, um, you know, to understand conceptually um, a little bit more about what what thoughts this this type of practice you know could erupt, erupt in one's mind, then in fact, um, you know, it's a bit of a poetic take on on there that that really was it, it needed to happen in that way so i'd kind of come back from the desert from time to time with these again with these objects videos ephemera um and that's sort of what led to this big big show at, at the chicago cultural center in 2016 where i wanted to kind of recreate the desert floor conceptually really remove okay you know it, this great space where i could where i could create these landscapes out of sculptures and then fly over it with a blimp in order to, I felt like it was really important for people to see me perform that experiment over and over and over again. Right, or yeah. My um, studio then. Right, yeah, you know, I went out to the Salton Sea uh, to try to sort of capture the landscape for a project back in 2004. And what I wound up with, with the videos and things that I captured was really not something that was adequate to I experienced there, which prompted me to sort of move towards some of this, these more new, just towards sound, towards new media practices, towards trying to kind of encapsulate that experience that I found very limiting within the frame of the video lens, right? Right. Uh, and I think that that sense of, uh, or that ability to create a sort of temporal shifting environment or in within the work became essential to try and to, to convey what I felt there, right? It, I couldn't be as sort of didactically descriptive with mm -hmm. with the with what I thought I was going to come away with. It all seemed a failure, so it kind of pushed me towards, and that was really the first piece that pushed me towards working with sound. So, huh? That's really wild. I mean, you've been working with sound now like a lot for quite a while. Where are you at, like, currently? Like, what types of, you know what I mean? Like, fast forward to where we are now. Like, what types of things are sort of emerging out of your studio at this point, given given the sound lens? Well, I think with sound, I mean, for me, what I started to realize is that 
sound it gives you the capacity to create these sort of very dynamic sort of sculptural um, experiences, right? And that if you once we start to be able to measure a sound wave and understand how it's going to move through space and create these sort of sonic landscapes or lattices in which you move through, then you create a very dynamic sort of sculptural experience um, that, you know, has continued to sort of propel my work to really, and I, I think for me, actually, it started around 2007 when I went to Ireland to do a residency at the Burren College of Art. Mm. Um, I couldn't, I wasn't going to make sculpture there. I wasn't going to bring it back. And so I used the tower castle at the college and some of the, the, the spaces there to create sonic objects. And from that point forward, I've started to sort of think about architecture as a platform to create objects within it, right? Masonic objects within it. And that's kind of where we're, we're And so that's the way in which, you know, I think sound is really sort of the gateway for me into um, a lot of the sort of new media work that we're doing or, or you know, working with programming and generating images and, and actually video and other images start to come back out of that process. But I think that itself was also a very liberating thing to work with in that it there's such a poor vocabulary within our with our within our language for descriptions of our sonic experience mm -hmm. that um, in many ways it's kind of an advantage. It's it it's very um, it, it it enables you to create an experience that we don't really know how to describe is as clearly as might a visual experience um, and bringing that back into the rest of my studio practice as a sculptor who's making physical objects not just sonic objects and they are physical objects i guess but um that um it changed and transformed my entire practice i think yeah i it's funny i i was thinking about uh, towards the end where you're just talking about how they are physical objects i just i love that i, I love that in teaching visual artists how to work with sound because I mean, it's it's physics and it requires it. It requires materiality and it requires, in my opinion, a material approach towards sound. And for me, it's been a good, um, I guess, pedagogically, it's it's been a great gateway. I, I think it's a great gateway for visual artists to get into new media. I think that it's there, you know, the at the heart of it, it's this really ephemeral kind of performative kind of space whether it's you know pre-recorded or not there's there's a there's something very very time obviously very time-based about sound and yet it's physical it can be sculpted it can be sort of um understood in in spatial terms um and i think that it i think both personally and for my students because there's really it's hard to kind of draw the line you know when you're teaching you're learning and so for me getting to teach that material helps me deeply engage with my interests in in just how it it makes you focus how it makes you observe um uh not just time but but sort of the ability to to kind of structure experiences that really um i hope shift shift the way people you know obviously look, I want people to come into a work, see it, hear it, 
experience it and I want them to leave changed in some way with a new lens to see the world. Exactly. I think sound does that. Yeah, and I think sound, and I think that's part of it. Sound has, we don't really have the vocabulary to sort of name what our experience is with sound to the same way we have with our visual experience or, or we do with, with, with other types of our of experience or, or works of art. And yet when we, we encounter a sort of very different sort of sonic experience, you, you really start to understand how much sound orients our sense of place, our sense of our own experience, right? Um, that, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. That is where we start to find these sort of like tidal shifts in our, in our ways of engagement with the world. Um, um, and sort of perhaps even sort of massive aesthetic shifts, right? Mm -hmm. We start to see and, and think about the world. Um, I think the trick is for me, you know, teaching to small liberal arts college and working with students is that I, I teach video and sculpture and I work with these students and trying to get them, get students to the point where they can start to understand, right? Um, what it takes to actually make these types of projects. Right, mm, right. So other set of technologies than and tools that um, most most of them don't really come in at least at the undergraduate level. And I know you're teaching graduate students um, very well equipped to understand. Right, right. It's right. A, it's kind of a mix of mathematics, computer science, perhaps right. and visual arts. Right, right electronics, material studies, I mean, like the list just, it just explodes. I, you know, it's funny, and yeah, I am, I am teaching grads, but most of them have either visual arts or photography or sculpture or sometimes dance, sometimes theater backgrounds, sometimes we're, we're getting that kind of thing, which is pretty awesome. But for the most part, it's, I, even at the graduate level, People don't have a vocabulary for sound. And typically, I'm not seeing too many people with a deep vocabulary of new media. Oftentimes, at the undergraduate level, I'm getting people who like had a video course and they were like hooked immediately and were like, wow, I got to find a lot more of that. And, you know, I, I, I'm thinking about somebody who, who just came to us last year. And I mean, specifically, she was like, oh my goodness, I stopped in on the sound class. I had no idea that we could spend a whole semester just like really di diving into that as opposed to, you know, as its own thing. My, like, my goodness, there's that much there. It's like, well, yeah, you could be a whole four years on it. <laughs> but right. yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something that deeply resonates with people about these sort of experiences that we can create through as through art um, with these media. I think that the, the thing that I find is that the, the history of visual art is not actually the history of new media art, right? Right, that's absolutely true, uh, right. <laughs> new media art actually has its origins in experimental music, and I think we get closest probably in the 50s and 60s with um, Fluxus and Gutai, right, and and John Cage and, and, and some of Peg's performances and things, but that's we have to look outside the sort the history of sculpture, painting, um, everything that we're taught within, you know, our traditional curricula, right? Right. Uh, to start to engage, and I think that's also why you see so many programs 
um, that exist out there in the country where you have an art program and then you have a new media program in a different school or a completely right. different department, right? Yeah, you're right. I mean, a big part of that is, you know, it has, it's not just that it has one history, it has several histories. And, and, and like they're overlapping and they're not neat, they're not convenient. I've, I've taught a, a graduate history in the media class for like 10 years. It is not convenient. And, you know, in order to really orient, before you even get into theory, just understanding the like multiple threads that weren't necessarily, you know, art oriented, but have, but have that application and, and have become, you know, sort of, you know, rich area, um, to totally with you that it, it makes sense to me. And actually, I, I kind of enjoy that there's that it's not one answer. I think it really requires there being multiple approaches towards this field, uh, as opposed to like becoming canonical too quickly. Yes, I, th I think it's actually essential. And it's, it's maybe why I gravitate towards it so much, because it's it's really quite liberating. <laughs> Right? right, it's not right. expected to be anything, right? Yeah. You know, well, for good or ill, yeah. <laughs> right, right, yeah. I mean, yes. I mean, I think to, to to handle these media well, I mean, it takes it takes a tremendous amount of of care and thought, right? And it's and in some ways, it's a very different approach, you know. Like for coming from a traditional sculpture background, like I could hit a piece of say marble from Georgia or. Vermont or Italy with a certain weight of a ha hammer and certain chisel and expect it to cleave and break in a certain way and trying to sort of understand get through that almost the invisible architecture of the integrated circuit right um, can take I mean, it certainly exists but it it it's 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 a process by which there for a lot of us entering into this field it's not that what we're familiar with is a one-to-one -one sort of relationship of cause and effect, right? Um, and so I think that that provides a significant amount of challenge in, in terms of the modes of sort of engagement and the way that you sort of lay out um, the expressive sort of qualities of your work, right? Yeah. Um, you don't have, you have to build that in uh, by a different sort of procedure, right? Right. Yeah, you can't flip playing around like Jackson Pollock, right? Well, there. I mean, you can you can try, but there it people eventually want to sort of graduate works that are a little bit more sophisticated, or 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 you know at least be able to do those, and then choose to do less sophisticated ones as opposed to just doing any old thing. What's what's challenging is, um, I mean, I guess the I, I'm not sure if this works, but oftentimes I think of like. You know, if you have a stool with three legs, you take one leg away, the thing falls over. New Moody is like a stool with like a thousand legs. And if you take one leg away, the whole thing falls over. You know, right. it's, it's, um, it's, it's not convenient all, all the time, but um, there, it definitely has an internal set of objects that, you know, you, there are, and sound is one of them. And it leads you to like sort of dealing with many of those fundamentals, in my opinion. Right. There's a certain sort of logic there. And I think the people who do it best, you know, because I mean, I think there's a lot of things with the sort of the, I don't know, the, the newness of some of these media. Right. Which is, I think, is starting to fade, thankfully. 
right? Because in so, how many airports have you walked through where you see these sort of like, you know, um, motion tracking pieces now that are just done by any sort of advertising company? But I think, you know, what these media to deeply sort of understand what some of this can do is you look at people like Golan Levin or especially who with these interactive pieces, there's something that prompts you to do something you didn't know that you could do before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a certain, um, there's something new that you learn about your own experience, right. Versus something that you, that doesn't, uh, doesn't really teach us anything new. It just becomes spectacle. Yes. Yeah. Right. But I, you know, that's an interesting point, though. I, I kind of, because I'm thinking about it, it's like, yes, I definitely, you definitely see a lot of these types of works in airports or, or other like very, um, like you see a lot of new media works that have that kind of edge. I think you're talking about even at like cultural institutions that aren't necessarily museums. And, and in many ways, I think that's what's fascinating about it, that this area, this material to work with is resilient enough to be able to show up in the white cube, the black box, uh, you know, the salon, the Renaissance salon, like it can, it can really, um, it can work in the airport. It's, I, I've, it's, it's not, again, not convenient. Um, it, uh, you know, and not everybody has to make every type of work. I, not that we would ever think that way, but I, I'm actually, strangely like attracted to this fact that there are in fact wholly commercial spectacle based things made with it um you know if i'm making if i'm using some of those same exact tools like you know whatever and making a more poetic sort of gesture with them and yet it's coming from it's like sort of the same material but it can do both of these different things i think that's you know it it elevates it above tool it's a language as a like, exactly, you know, the Aristotelian sense of poetics exactly put it that what what you can do the the potential for any sort of form to to be expressive, right? Right, uh, and that's the great thing about these tools. That's what kind of led me to them from sculpture. I was making these mechanical sculpture for many years, and the the sonic artifacts, I guess, in many ways, you know, when they were in a room together started to make me think about different compositions and, and thinking about this was even more interesting than the objects themselves. So um, from at that point, it was just sort of hacking together whatever I could find at the hardware store and working with different sort of electronics. And so that's to, to build these different sort of evolving temporal compositions, right? Right. Uh, and trying to acknowledge that sense of constant flux. And once you, you know, that's what eventually sort of led me towards both sound, right, and toward programming, right, using Arduinos and processing and pure data in these different languages, um, <clears throat> so that I could create a more dynamic sense of composition um, that I think is the energy that so many of the visual arts were trying to capture prior to this, but those tools just really weren't available. Huh. Right, right. Not widely, not in the same right. way, because right. access, you know, access is a pretty big, big part of it. And you know, there's certainly like phases of 
you know, uh, I'm thinking like early art and technology kind of movement, certainly, I, I know talking about this contemporary moment. And yeah, that, that the level of access is um, information and parts and all the rest of it. And, and actually, I mean, even though it's a slightly different topic, but the extreme shift from the 90s to the 2000s, where, where we went from like, you know, occasionally, or a lot of the times being a desire on the part of artists to like, sort of, frankly, monetize mm -hmm. and job with that versus like, you know, the extreme explosion of open source ethos and the good, good, good things that that did to the field. I mean, when we moved from a lot of artists um, who, you know, were, were kind of in the, not that this is wholly true, but I, there was a, there was a great push towards making tools and then sort of making them proprietary and then like sort of turning them into products, which is fine. But there was this enormous sort of sea change. Uh, I think a lot of it came about because of processing and the way that they went open source, but also gave it out free. And then you had, you know, Arduino and all these sister projects sort of immediately embracing this, this other sort of model. And I think the good news for teaching was, I mean, other than the fact that, you know, we could start to afford, uh, you know, whole labs of things, is that it, it really just shifted the conversation in a really good way. And I, I agree with you because, I mean, and I think that the shift that's being, now is we're starting to sort of evaluate these tools and processes and start to think about them in terms of how they, you know, almost bringing them out of their own, their own small niche within the art world, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's still a few challenges there in terms of about museums and institutions and curators in terms of how they deal with new media, but I think that is starting to dissolve, um, starting to fade a bit. Um, I think that once we start to understand like what, what we were talking about before, where the history of these media aren't in the visual arts, and we we don't need to, if we look at them through that lens, we're looking at them in the wrong way, right? right. Um, then um, we're starting to see the the entire sort of field start to mature. I, I agree with you there, too. I mean, I think it's, you know, you, you definitely had like this age of pioneers, and then you had them founding schools and them finding schools of thought. And like, we're, we're in, a, in a certain way, in a certain sense, two or three generations past some of the pioneering work. Um, not that there aren't other roots in like computer science and whatnot that, that make it messy, but there is definitely a, 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 not a problem, but a economy of scale in which you, you have artists, but you also have curators who would have had access to, you know, maybe taking a visual arts course in new media. So like, and not to mention, we swim in, you know, where we think we understand it because we have the internet and these different technologies. And while that maybe obfuscates a little bit of what's really going on, at the same time, it 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 elevates a general level of interest and awareness in these um, materials and languages as, as a potential creative space. And that's, you know, that's not quite you know, I, I mean, I ha I've worked with, you know, some of my mentors who I worked with in grad school were learning how to make images you know, by writing programs on punch cards. They didn't have displays. They literally were imagining. It was like 
it like it was very much a thought experiment. They were actually having to imagine what this image might look like and then come up with processes and programs that they only found out the results after like, you know, a day or two when it when the machine ran it. And I think that those those that's an extremely conceptual route. <laughs> if you, yeah, and that's what I you know, difference in terms of like carving a piece of stone, right, versus this process. And it takes, um, it's a different sort of creative engagement that you have to sort of lay everything out and see what comes out the other side. And it's kind of invisible until it does. Um, it's, um, it really has caused you to change a little bit about the way you think about your work. Um, I think the other thing too for me is that, you know, having spent some time reading like Miles Horton's work and, and thinking about, you know, there's fantastic work. We make the road by walking, which is completely untechnological, but you know, so much about the pedagogy of the Highlander folk school and social activism it was about listening to the people you were working with and building an educational system around them. Right. And how does this make sense? And I think that one of the things that the questions I have, and maybe a question I'll point put to you, Paul, is like it, having taught sculpture now for nearly twenty years, mm -hmm. right? Um, where and how do I integrate these technologies, right? What do I drop, or right? I mean, what is, what are the mm -hmm. essential lessons left? And those are one of the things. Those are some of the things I'm starting to evaluate. Like, where where do I put CAD or programming into Art 100, right? Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, I, I'm not sure if I'm pushing back or pushing forward or pushing with you, but you just got to drop stuff. You, you, there, this, the truth of the matter is, is there is not enough time to cover everything. And we have to cover things in such a way that we are generating um, and propelling our, like we have to, propel our students to have this interest to dive deeper. The things that they're gonna use, I mean, there are indeed fundamentals. And so, you know, anytime we have kind of a fundamental school, I think that should definitely be in because it's hopefully transferable as the materials and, and you know, application areas change. But I really think it takes, I'll be blunt, courage to say, you know what? We're just not gonna cover X, Y, or Z. And that's right. And I think that that's part of, I mean, I'm certain that's part of why it's so difficult in some curriculum conversations, because there's a realization that there is, in fact, a limit. There's a finite amount of things that you're going to be able to say or give or show. And yet, I think that we could come out on this other side, you know, with an intermediate research approach, you come out stronger because you're come because you're letting students walk away with, again, like, um, uh, a process, a methodology that they can apply to, you know, essentially, uh, and then not to mention a passion to recognize that, you know, that they have some real agency to sort of, you know, ch choose which of these areas to kind of, kind of dive in on. And I think, but I think it takes real courage, not just from an individual faculty member, really from a whole, um, you know, the, the faculty that is in charge of a curriculum at a given place to really say, no, we're, we're making a conscious choice not to cover. And I don't want to say anything specific because then somebody will think that that's the thing I don't want in. But I, cause I think it's a case by case basis. I think that, it, you know, they have, you have to analyze and look at the faculty that you have, look at their strengths, 
look at what is the best way that they can get students motivated to be, you know, self-activated and, um, and, you know, and, and, and in many cases that's going to mean not covering things. And by the way, I don't mean, uh, like that might be at the expense of some, uh, technological things that might be at the expense of some very traditional things. Uh, it might, it might actually mean at the expense of, you know, um, well, I'm not sure, but I, I know that in order to have people have a more resilient and hybrid nature, I, I do think that it takes, um, you know, a, a real embrace of uh, some of the goals of what happened at the liberal arts when you're able to take a course, say, in, you know, ethnography or a course in coding or a course in um you know, maybe videography alongside or maybe completely integrated within a course on drawing or lighting or, you know, or, or photographic practices. Um, now, and things don't have to be separated out. I mean, I think is the other thing that's, that's quite um, useful, at least in, in my teaching, uh, you know, certainly when I, you know, if I'm teaching, I think workshops really do a nice job of allowing you to design collisions. Um, I remember I taught a course a few years back. It was undergraduate, which was really cool. Uh, chance at the time. Uh, it was like one of these topics courses and it was conceptual strategies was the course. And then the topic was acoustic programming is what I came up with. So I was thinking, how could we start learning programming, but thinking about it as like an unplugged kind of live set. And, right. and what does that mean to sort of you know, perform your code for a while. We eventually sat down and messed with computers and like, um, you know, applied some of that poetics to actual code. But it was a real relief, I think, for the students who ended up making some truly wild things. I, I recall the last, you know, day, it was one of these things where everybody came in with something and, you know, it's maybe it's pretty typical to say, oh my goodness, and everybody came in with something different. Like, one person was making animations. Another person was teaching their parrot how to make artworks. It was and like brought the parrot in, and we had a, a you know a, you know a, a, we had another person who was doing performances with watermelons. Like it, it was, you wouldn't necessarily get there from the course description, but it was exactly what I would hoped would happen, which is that the students took charge of how they were going to integrate this coding knowledge into their making, regardless of whether it came out on a computer or out of speakers or you name it. Right. And yeah, it has to make sense to them. Like I, I, I would guess the same for you, but I would never have tried to write computer code at all had I not had an end goal in mind. You know, I mean, the, the man who created pure data, um, Miller Puckett, mm -hmm. that was my math teacher. And I got, a, I got a D minus from him in my freshman year in college. Um, now I use his son's, you know, language all the time. But you know, so but I had to figure out what made sense to kind of bring me there, right? And so that you know, that's sort of what I'm thinking about in terms of like what makes sense to students today, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of the world they're living in, their what they're engaging with, how they're they're thinking about the world, um, and also. Um, ways in which you can sort of significantly integrate these lessons so that one translates easily to the other right because mm -hmm. i think that you can learn you can learn a craft at any point right 
I think you need to learn methods of engagement. You need to learn ways of thinking. You need to learn to think creatively and through any medium, right? Um, I think the trick for me is how do you become multidisciplinary without becoming non-disciplinary, right? Sure. To, to where they know they're not capable of doing anything, right? Right. Well, I, and I do think that's a that's that's a real danger. I mean. You know, um, gosh, you know, having having taught in interdisciplinary programs, I can't tell you how many times me and my colleagues have had the, you know, these these language uh, like, OK, or is it undisciplined? Is it inter? Is it trans? Is it, you know, uh, you know, meta? Sometimes. I, I think I think, though, your question is the right way to frame it. Is yeah. how do we make sure that they know how to do something, and how do we make sure that they leave with some confidence, um, you know, in 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 themselves? I'd have to say, and and you know, whether, and, and again, this probably speaks to my theater undergraduate, and plus like a little bit of philosophy in there. But like, I do kind of think like a lot of good logic, a, a lot of good like learning how to read. I, I mean, really, just just really, really being analytic about being able to absorb lots of reading and being able to process that information is, you know, we would think that true of any, I would hope, discipline, whether it's inter or otherwise, and whether it's a creative field like artists or otherwise, like, you know, to have dialogue, you have to, I think, have a point of view. To have a point of view, you have to be able to, I hope, um, you know, the academic way to say it would be like, you know, be able to conduct literature review or basically be able to understand what other people are saying and what they've done before. And so like that that reading comprehension part, honestly, I, you know, if I was going to like this one, I am one, I was like, like, yeah, like we could, we could probably be OK with losing a few things out of an art curriculum by making sure that that part, the, the reading and like sort of um, those basics are are really, really, you know, well, well dealt with. Um, and I think that the idea that artists would be willing to teach, look, as an artist, this is how I use research. This is how it's a part of my everyday studio practice. It's not just something else that I do once in a while. And this is how it's valuable. Um, I, I think it's just, you know, and it may, I'm sure many, many of our colleagues do talk that way, but I just feel like it needs to be upfront. Um, yeah. I, I agree. I mean, I think that the gift of creative thought is to be able to conflate, right, mm -hmm. and change and step outside of our own ways of thinking about certain things and not work within just the discrete sort of modes of sort of um, <clears throat> of working within other academic disciplines, right? So that, you know, the ability to to make strange, right, to, to mm. something in a slightly different light. And um, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, that sounds like a really great place to wrap it up. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you both so much.